here with us today is Kelsey Hightower. He is a principal engineer at Google working on Google's cloud platform. He has helped develop and refine many Google cloud products, including Google's Kubernetes engine, cloud functions, and AppG's API gateway. He is also a huge open source contributor and currently maintains multiple projects that aid software developers in building and shipping cloud native applications. Mr. Hightower is also an accomplished author and keynote speaker with a knack for explaining complex topics to expand accessibility. Mr. Hightower is also known for his work in the engineering community and was inaugural winner of the CNCF Top Ambassador Award for his work helping bootstrap the Kubernetes community. Uh, Mr. Hightower, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks for uh, having me. So one of the more confusing aspects of the work that you do, at least for me and for other people who maybe aren't as familiar with the software engineering community, is the idea of uh, open source software. Could you take a moment to sort of explain what open or free sourcing is and why it's important? Yeah, so I mean, if we were to use a different thing to compare, you could think about like the music industry. So imagine having free concerts from local musicians uh, that can come together and collaborate on a song and they can choose to give that music away. Uh, they could choose to let other people use their lyrics. They could assign copyright in a way that says, if you want to sing the same song as I do, maybe in a karaoke bar, that's okay. If you want to use my track for your own song with a different set of words, that's okay. So the open source community follows that kind of philosophy. Uh, we build, in this case, instead of music, we're building software and we have licenses like the Apache version two, the MIT license, and all of those allow us to assign copyright in a way that allows us to get credit for our work while allowing other people to change it. So to sort of move into how that works with what you're doing, uh, you work on a number of different Google Cloud applications such as Google's Kubernetes. How does Kubernetes function as a uh, open source program? Yeah, so in the area of open source, you know, whether it's an operating system like Linux, uh, Kubernetes is another form of infrastructure that Google started as an open source project. So before we build commercial products, a lot of times there'll be an open source project behind it. And this is to establish industry standards, right? So we're building something based on our expertise, but there's lots of other companies around the world who also are building either commercial products or building internal systems themselves. So typically what you'll see is we'll design something in open source, get a bunch of people to collaborate and contribute. And once we really figure out how it should work, how it should feel, then we can have a better gauge on, is it ready to have a commercial product behind it? So many of the things in Google's DNA are built around open source Android for like mobile phones. That's also an open source project. Chrome, the web browser, was also an open source project and still is. So we typically do that because in order to really get industry adoption, typically most vendors, even possibly your competitors, won't, aren't as willing to collaborate if there isn't a fair model to share the work between each other. Interesting. When you okay. say uh, a fair model, is that referring to the platform itself? How does that how does that function when it gets to like the uh, larger corporation level? Got it. 
Um, so let's use a real world example. Um, so there's Kubernetes and that's built for running applications and cloud providers mm -hmm. could use it. But let's use another example of Microsoft, right? They have mm -hmm. Windows, they had Microsoft Internet Explorer. And Internet Explorer was Microsoft's own web browser. It came with Windows. There was no other way for any other company to build it or change it or add new features. Also, you couldn't take Internet Explorer and put it on another operating system without Microsoft's permission. That's closed source software. And most software we use is done that way. But let's say um, Google Chrome, for example, that's Google's web browser. Well, one thing is when you come out and everyone's already using, whether it's Internet Explorer, there's other ones like Firefox or Opera, they already have most of the market share. So why would I switch if I'm getting that web browser, Microsoft already gives it to me. So I'm not probably going to be willing to pay for another web browser. Also, there's other things that you want your web browser to do. So at that time, um, there were new like web standards that came out. So instead of using like, you know, Micromedia Flash, if you remember all those animations in your web browser, well, that was also a proprietary technology. So in order for someone to create content for the web, you would have to buy a license for Macromedia's Flash product. So that way you can also build animations. Well, that's a little bit of, um, that's prohibitive to people who may not have a lot of money. The web is about sharing information. So sometimes you wanna make sure you can democratize technology. So what Google said was, we're gonna do a really good job around web standards. So instead of Micromedia Flash, what about HTML, CSS, and JavaScript? Very popular frameworks for building websites. But what Google wanted to do was push the bar. Imagine what we could do with JavaScript. You can actually build whole video games using JavaScript if only there was a browser that was willing to support the latest and greatest versions of JavaScript. So one way of doing that is to set industry standards, a couple of things. One, if you open source your new web browser like Google Chrome, you can get other people who may not have their own browser to say, hey, we can contribute to yours and then we can possibly compete with the likes of Internet Explorer. 20 plus years later, Microsoft has also decided to build their new browser on top of Chrome. Why? Well, because it's open source. They can just download the source code. They don't really have to have a legal agreement between the two companies or a partnership where they have to pay us money. No, they can take the software and say, well, we want to do things a little differently than what Google's doing. And they're free to do that. They wouldn't do that if it was a closed source commercial product, because number one, they may not want to tell us all their plans. We probably wouldn't agree to do the work for them. So it would be a really sticky situation. But now that it's open source, they can build upon our work. And if they want, they can share it back. And that allows this whole ecosystem to keep growing. Why is this important? Well, it turns out no one's going to buy a web browser. It just needs to be there. And turns out if we do a really good job, we don't need 25 different web browsers. So we can reuse a lot of technology like the internet and the freeways. We don't need every state building their own disconnected freeway. And that makes things super complicated. So as a community, we all come together and we work on one set of technologies and allow others to change it based on their needs. Thank you. That was an excellent response. I also think that that ties really interestingly into 
sort of the history of open source. As I was researching, I found that Microsoft used to be very against the idea of open source technology and open source software because it would close down some of their opportunities. But the way you're describing it, it seems as though Google has found a way to keep competition available while also having the means for collaboration to push innovation. Yeah, I think the history of open source can go can be traced back a lot further, you know, uh, maybe even before Microsoft is maybe truly born in the form that we know Microsoft as. Uh, before there was only proprietary software for the most part. And the likes of IBMs would sell universities, you know, mainframes with their mm -hmm. operating systems. But they became this really tricky situations where imagine you're a research department and you want to try new things. Well, you need the source code in order to do so. And so back then, what would happen would be, you know, your university would probably pay a large fee for access to that source code. Any changes you made, you would have to maybe negotiate whether they could be shared with others. But even if you decided to share them, the other party would also need to have a license. So this is great for large universities, but not so great for smaller universities or even just your average citizen. So one person kind of decided, um, I'm probably going to get his name wrong, but um, we call him RMS, uh, Ramis. He and so what he decided was that he would rewrite all of the software from a clean slate. So from using the other software, he can actually re-implement most of the small command line tools, how operating systems operate. Um, and we call this like the GNU project. Their goal was to try to democratize software by creating what we call free software. And he also had a license called the GPL to ensure that it's always free. Now there's some philosophical differences between the different approaches to open source, but the idea would be is that the source code would be made available and then there would be a license to govern how it's being used. And then later on, you had people like Linus Tolverts would come along and say Unix, which was the you know, most popular commercial server-side operating system also suffer from the same thing. You needed a license in order to use it to power your machines. So he decided to open source what he called Linux, very popular project. But when you combine Linux, the operating system with some of the missing components, the GNU project, and you push them together, you get what we commonly think about in terms of uh, Linux that can run on your desktop, uh, Android that runs on your phone, um, maybe even some people that do buy a computer that has Linux on it. And most of the cloud is powered by Linux virtual machines, um, giving people this Unix-like experience. So that's the foundation of open source. Really, we're challenging big proprietary software. That's how it started. But it turned out this collaboration model is actually a vehicle for innovation. You can move much faster when the whole world can contribute to the same project. And that's where things took off. And so for Microsoft, this was a threat to their business. They're selling lots and lots of software. And also it wasn't very clear what the legality was around open source. Some of this stuff was in all intents and purposes, copies of other things. So who was going to back you up if you ran into a legal issue? And this is where the likes of IBM and um, Novell and Red Hat stepped in to provide legal protection. So that time period that you're talking about was 
you had a lot of the enterprise software vendors pushing back on this movement because who wants to see their profits go to zero if they have no other way of monetizing? Luckily, Microsoft has made pivots over the last 10 to 15 years, and you will now find advertisements that say things like, Microsoft loves Linux because now they have a different way to monetize. They now make computers, they now make, they have a cloud platform, and now what they can do is sell people service and not necessarily operating systems. Yeah, interesting. So one of the things that I especially wanted to ask you about after being part of the event and listening to you answer some of the questions in the Q&A was to sort of push the idea that you brought up about how everybody, regardless of their field, can use programming and can use different ideas about computing to help them. And you specifically brought up the example of your wife and how you were able to, using a program that you wrote, you were able to put in the names and GPA of the students that she had into a specific program to make her life that much easier, to make everything go that much faster, which brilliant, love that. However, something that I kept thinking was, how can we make sure that people know that that, that type of program, that that is even something that, we, that they could do? I think one of the things that I keep running into is I should, I or anybody else have a uh, problem that needs a solution. I'm not sure that I would know that the that there even is an easy solution like the one you brought up simply because that background doesn't exist. So how can we sort of shift a wider understanding to students, to younger people, to a wider audience that, you know, if you, you can only learn these programs if you know that that's a possible solution. Do you know what I'm saying? So how can exactly you sort of expand saying. that? Yeah, so I can, imagine, I can imagine a world before the dictionary. You know, like there's a bunch of words, we call it English. Uh, some people have larger vocabularies than others, but how would you know which word to pick if there was no dictionary that you can go mm -hmm. look these things up? So what is the equivalent of the dictionary for open source? And so this is a very hard problem, right? It's like, what movie should I watch tonight? If you don't know what the movies are, then it's gonna be a very hard problem. So discovery is always a challenge. And so what we've done in the community is we have places like GitHub. And GitHub is a place where I can go share my source code, right? I can have a landing page, I can give my product a title. And in the description, I might say, hey, this tool can be used to generate um, student achievement awards. Here's how it works. You need the student's username or their name and their GPA. And this program will create a template in Google slides and you can just print them out. Here's the instructions. And so that's part of the discovery phase. And just like any other good movie or restaurant, you have to do a little bit of self-promotion. Maybe you go to the school system and say, Hey, I have this free program. Uh, it's free to use. Here's how it works. Would you like to do a workshop to teach your people how to use it? And this what presents this weird challenge. It's free software. I'm not making any money. So why would I pay money to have people use my software for free in the form of advertising? And this is where some of these, the best of the human 
uh, characteristics come out. You know, you may say, hey, that's my wife and or this is my local school system. And I just want to share to make things better. We always ask, how can we give back? And it mm -hmm. turns out we can pair our software engineering skills with problems that other people have and solve the problem in a scalable way. And that's where a lot of the value comes from open source. So I solved it for one school building, but now the software could be used for the whole district. And maybe someone in the district will say, hey, fellow teacher in other school district, I'm using this program. You can download it and use it too. And that's how this stuff spreads. Another idea that you brought up in your lecture was this idea of how you have the confidence and how you can avoid what you uh, brought up as imposter syndrome when you are the only person in a room that looks like you. And I think one of the things that stood out to me was that it's, you are not just functioning with the single addition in the back of your mind that, oh, I'm the only person in the room that looks like me, but also there's a level of, I'm one of the people in the room who doesn't have a college education, who taught myself all of these things. How did you best work through that? And what would you recommend other people who are in the same boat, whether it be the same specific disparities that they were facing or others? This is really challenging because, you know, I don't know if this works in all scenarios, but when you're the person that people see as part of the solution, it tends to break down barriers before they can really be risen to block you from achieving things. Like if someone's computer is broken and you happen to be the person that can fix it, there's already kind of this social contract that you are important, at least for this problem at hand. Mm -hmm. So being someone in tech, I am the software builder. I am the person who is going to take my skills and your idea and put them together. So this doesn't work without me. And I think a lot of times in society, when we don't have a natural respect for others, we tend to place them maybe lower in the hierarchy. Like, why would I even talk to you? There's nothing you can do for me. Oh, you're just a trash person. You don't need my respect. And so, and so when, that, when, that, when, that happens, when that happens, we tend to fall into this trap of treating people unfairly or unjust, or we don't care about their concerns. So for me, I was very lucky is when I got into that part of my career, people had no choice but to see me. I am the fixer. You have to treat me with the level of respect because if you don't, then the problem won't get solved. So I think that's where my confidence came from that realizing that the great equalizer for most of those situations was my skill set. I could do something that they couldn't do. And the thing that I could do they could really, really respect. And in many ways at that time, and still today, we glorify software developers, right? We, we have the rock stars like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And so in the minds of others, right? We see this with athletes as well. You know, even people that are prejudiced, you know, I think there was a study that when you look at a sports stadium, those people come from all walks of lives. Maybe they have some biases, but when it's game time, all of that disappears and they're cheering for that team to win. And if you're on the same team or if you're cheering for the same team as I am for this moment, for the next two or three hours, we're all on the same team. And I think that's the thing that really gives you that confidence and it makes who you are 
sometimes it makes it disappear because the common goal seems to be bigger. And I think that's what most of us are trying to achieve. How do we allow our work to speak for who we are? Or, you know, those are the things we want to be respected for. So that's what I think I started to slowly see. But what happens, though, is when people may not know who I am. And so maybe they're a little bit reserved when I walk in a room, like, who is this person? We're here to talk about big strategic enterprise stuff. We were expecting someone possibly in a suit, but maybe someone that looked a little bit different. But once you start talking, you immediately talk with confidence. And what they have to do is say, oh, wow, this person knows what they're talking about, or at least it sounds like it. Yeah, sort of not giving them a choice to have that disrespect coming in knowing exactly what you're doing. I also like the point about finding that common goal that does act as an equalizer. That is, that's a good way to think about it. So as somebody that's been in this field for quite some time now, what are you looking forward to seeing in the future? Like what, what, what do you think you are most excited to see become developed or be pushed by, by Google or within your own specific bubble or as a wider field? What's, what are you really looking forward to? I mean, there's been so many things that have come to life. Like, you know, in my world, we work on platforms that democratize technology. And so in our field, we've been trying to figure out how do we reduce the amount of things you need to know to build something amazing. If you think about when like mobile phones came out, uh, they came with all of these libraries and toolkits and they've gotten better over time that if you want to build your own game, it's almost like they give you all, it's like watercolors, right? Like the pictures are already there. You just got to, you know, wet your paintbrush and something magical will happen, but you still have to do a little bit of the work. And so I want to see more and more of these platforms be democratized where more and more people can go build nice experiences. So we see this all over the place, like video games, like Minecraft, you can build your own world. And then there's games like Roblox, where you can build your own game within the game and even make money from that game. And we see this with software. I met a lawyer and he said, hey, I used to be a lawyer. And I was like, oh, okay, so what are you doing now? And he's building software for people who run their own flight schools. And I was like, oh, so you went and learned how to code? He was like, oh, I didn't say that. He's using, you know, the various no-code platforms where you can do things like take a scheduling widget, take someone else's business and create mobile apps and apps that run the browser. And so he can now sign up workflows and he can do things like, I am a flight instructor. I fly these type of planes. Here's my rate. And he can now match make with people who want to take flying lessons. And for him, he just used a software package that had like 95% of the components that you need. And he just glued them together to produce an app that other people could use. So now he runs and manages his own software business. This is going to be transformational because all throughout the world, each of these societies and cultures and communities need different things. We, no way we can solve all the problems because we're not all privy to them. But when you do find a problem and you say, hey, we want to automate the irrigation of our crops, you can now build your own tools to do so. And sometimes software plays a huge component in that. So the more and more that we can turn this stuff into 
platforms that other people can use without spending two or three years learning software development from the ground up. That's super exciting to me because then we start to have this collective uh, growth in human experience. And if this open source, um, open source mindset continues, then each time this happens, the next group doesn't have to start from scratch. That's an excellent point. Thank you so much for spending some time with us.